Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, which features a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts, along with Jim Deshays. I am Len Casper. We make up the Cubs television crew. Belated happy Father's Day, J.D., and a belated happy 60th birthday. Man, it's a big week for you. It is a big week, Len, and uh, we've, uh, we've come up with a little bridge celebration to the day in between Father's Day and my birthday. Uh, it's a, or he's a jolly good person uh, holiday, so we're celebrating around the clock here. It's been a, like a lollapalooza of, of me. Great, and uh, we should have baseball back here uh, at some point in July. We are looking forward to that. More on that later. Today's guest is former Cubs pitcher Kerry Wood. He struck out 20 as a rookie against the Houston Astros in 1998. He was the National League Rookie of the Year that year, a two-time All-Star. J.D., he is a, a native Texan, but he has made his home here in Chicago with his family and uh, one of the better guys around. Yeah, beloved by, by Cub fans. Um, makes his home here, as you mentioned. Does a lot of great work in the community. Uh, pitched arguably the, the most dominant game in baseball history. And, and the other thing about Kerry Wood, too, I think, you know, if, if people Google Kerry Wood, they don't know his story, you know, one of the words that pops up is disappointing, you know, in, in regards to his career, because he didn't end up having the Hall of Fame career due to all the injuries. But he had a really good major league career. You mentioned a couple all-star appearances, the rookie of the year. Um, of course, we play the what could have been story when we talk about Kerry Wood, but what was, was really good. Yeah, 14 years uh, in the majors, not only the 86 wins, but 63 saves as later he became a closer. So without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Kerry Wood. Woody, thanks for joining us. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. You've been retired for a while, but it has to feel weird not being able to go to the ballpark. Yeah, it's a, definitely a weird time. Um, you know, not just sports related, obviously, with what's going on in the world, but um, to not even be able to, to flip a game on TV and, and, and hear you guys uh, describing it for us and watching it. So it's, um, it's definitely, definitely a weird, weird time. How are you and the family holding up? We're good. Listen, we can't we can't complain. We've got, you know, we've got some space here. We've got a yard, and and uh, and you know, we've had we've had lots of family dinners, and uh, actually every night family dinners and family lunches and all that stuff. So we've we've had some good quality time and some great conversation. But I, you know, I really feel for the people in the big cities. They're in you know studio apartments. They're not you know in a building with you know five hundred other people and. and you know, what kind of what they had been going through. So I, I can't complain at all. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the silver lining is uh, a lot of quality family time, but um, as much as I'm, I know I'm going to enjoy the uh, next 45 minutes chatting with you, it'd be a lot more fun in person. That's what I actually miss about the ballpark is it really hits home how many conversations you have and how that dominates your day before, during, and after a ball game. Yeah, right. I mean, even just coming into the yard, the ushers and the security people and conversations you're, you're used to having every day, I'm sure that's that's quite a change. Um, you know, my son has been playing some baseball and um, they actually started up this past weekend. So we not here in Illinois. We had to go to Wisconsin where it's guns ablaze and there all, all, all systems go. But uh, it still was weird being around people and being, 
being out and, uh, but it was definitely nice to, to, uh, you know, on Father's Day to get out there and have a chance to watch the kids play. Anything that uh, brings us a sense of normalcy, right? Anything that kind of feels like, yeah, this is, this is what it used to feel like. Yeah. It felt, I never felt so, so good to sit out in 92 degree heat in the sun with no shade. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit today. Um, but you last pitched, uh, in the big leagues in a very memorable uh, final game as a Cub in uh, 2012. Uh, you have remained incredibly productive uh, in retirement. Uh, you and your wife, Sarah, have done amazing uh, work uh, for uh, various charities. Uh, as you said, you're, you're a family man as well. Um, as you retired and you looked ahead to the, the next eight to 10 years, what, what goals did you set for yourself? Uh, and, and do you feel like you accomplished those? That's a great question. You know, it, it, the retirement kind of happened quickly. The shoulder was kind of, I could tell the shoulder was going to go. And, you know, I definitely didn't want to go back on the DL again and end and my career on the training table. So, um, you know, it was kind of a quick decision. I honestly didn't, I didn't have time or didn't even think about the next eight to 10 years. So, you know, I, when retirement happened and, and, you know, the next day you guys are all, everybody's still playing games and I'm at home. It was, uh, you know, it was it was fine. I, I was ready to go for sure, um, and I was good with the con- with the decision. But um, that conversation never came up with the wife and I and the family about you know what the next ten years are going to look like. So, um, really, just wanted to enjoy the kids and, and be around. And and uh, I knew I wanted to coach uh, coach my son, and and I uh, got a chance to do that for four or five years, and just you know loved that and, and had so much fun traveling around playing baseball, and got to take him and do the the twelve year old Cooper Sound trip and. You know, I was a coach sleeping in the bunk with the 12, 12-year-olds and trying to keep them under control and doing laundry and breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, um, you know, as I look back on those memories, it's, it's, I was so glad I, I had the opportunity and the time to be able to go do those things. Um, yeah. You know, and travel. We just, we, we did a lot of travel. We, we just, we didn't, we didn't sit still for, you know, five or six years and, and just kept kind of moving around and, and uh, going and seeing the world, going and seeing our country and other countries, and and the kids have really enjoyed doing that as well. So you know, and then I got a chance to, to coach my daughter's basketball team for a few years, and and get to know all her friends, and it's just been, it's really been family focused, and and uh, you know, traveling around and seeing seeing the world, and and really enjoying the time that I always heard older teammates say that man, I wish I had more time. Or guys always retire because they say I want to spend time with the family. And then they're playing, you know, they're out playing golf five or six days a week. And I'm like, well, how much time are you really spending with the family if you're at the golf course all the time? Um, so I tried the golf thing and I'm terrible. So I, I, I limit that to maybe once a week. But um, I just really, really am focused on enjoying the family and traveling and seeing, seeing, the, seeing the world and, and, and being a part of their lives as much as I can. And, and then obviously the foundation has taken up some time and, and, uh, and foundation is doing great. So we've, we've made big strides in the foundation as well. Well, I have uh, I have two questions based on your answer. Uh, one, you mentioned you, you felt your shoulder starting to go because I was curious and I looked at fan graphs and uh, you were still throwing 94 miles per hour. You were 34 years old. So just looking at those numbers, one could say, man, there was, there was plenty left in the tank, but your shoulder obviously was, was barking. Um, you had so many stints on the DL, so many injuries. Um, so just, I can imagine you, you knew your body so well, you knew it was, it was going to blow out on you. Yeah. You know, that spring training, I, it was a weird spring training for me. I got off, I felt good coming in and, um, and had a, had a started playing catch and throwing bullpens and I'm like, something's not right. And so I kind of, I don't know if you guys remember that we pushed off 
my outings, you know, for a couple of weeks. And I was just doing stuff on the backfield, just trying to figure out what was going on and get it right and do a lot of treatment on it. And um, I think I only had two or three innings in spring training that year and, 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 you know, deemed myself ready to go and got off to a really bad start and, and still didn't feel great and, and wasn't recovering. And, um, you know, it really just got to the point where I was, I was handcuffing our manager, Dale uh, Swain. I was just, I was just handcuffing him. If I pitched, you know, if I pitched on a Tuesday, I, I wasn't, I wasn't available again until Friday or Saturday. I just couldn't recover. And, and so we tried to, we tried to get through it and we tried to figure out what was going on and, and, and and figure it out and it just never it never came around so I really really felt like I wasn't doing the team of any good service more of a disservice than anything and, and really really handcuffing him so it just got to the point when I did finally recover after four or five days of my previous side and I said hey I think this next one's gonna have to be it you know give give the next guy in line a shot and my uh, my other question based on your previous response totally unrelated the coaching your daughter in hoops were you a pacing up and down the sideline guy, a chewing on a towel guy? What was what was your uh, what was your vibe over there? No, the I, I stayed seated. It, it, it was house league. It was pretty tame. Um, definitely barking the entire game, you know, because they're they're twelve, ten, ten years old at the time, and and uh, just ten and eleven, and trying to remind them where they're supposed to be. They all want to guard the ball, and you know, there's four four girls underneath the basket that are wide open, and they're all guarding the point guard. So just just barking at them and reminding them that they that they've got somebody to guard and, and stay with them and uh, you know, trying to trying to convince them that we've worked on an inbounds play for the last six weeks in practice. Let's try to see if we can run it one time during the season and, and do it correctly. So it was, it was fun. Yeah, I, I did. The, I coached my daughters down in Texas in, in Y basketball, and yeah, I was stressed out, man. It was, they were just little kids, but you were, you got so invested in. And there was always that, you know, my, ours was kind of like a house league too, and you were you you wanted that that little kid that never touched the ball to score a basket or you know one of the, one of those moments that that's all that really mattered you know yeah. losing and losing was was obviously secondary but if if the little kid that had no clue you know with the glasses sliding down off the end of her nose and oh yeah you know, if she managed to score it's like the whole place went bonkers everybody everybody's got those on their team and it was fun and we actually it was a really cool league that ref the referees were were all local guys too and older guys and they get it they've been doing it for years so you know if it, it was even if it wasn't a blowout, sometimes it was a close game. They'd come over to the bench and say, hey, does anybody, anybody need to score? And then he'd call like a phantom foul on somebody that was off the ball. And then they'd, you know, they'd get a couple free throws. They'd get a, get a couple chances to, to put one in the hoop. So it, it was a great league, great time. Great. Well, you uh, clearly have, are well-adjusted. And uh, as you said, it's, it's, it's difficult for some guys when all of a sudden they're 34, 35, and they're looking at the rest of their life, and they're not quite sure what they want to do. and um, you know, I'm so happy for Mark Pryor, uh, who's now the pitching coach for the Dodgers. I uh, get a chance to see him a couple times a year. And I, I often think of the pressure cooker you guys were in, uh, you know, 2 3 and that 3 team, such a good club. Um, but being a Cub is not always easy. And I'm sure you can tell some of the younger players that, you know, when the, when the pressure ratchets, ratchets up, uh, you, you really have to, to, to be good on the big stage. So when you think of, you know, those days in particular and you and Mark in particular because of the spotlight that was on you guys, what, what, what are the first few thoughts that come to mind? Wow. Well, first thought is, is, is how the young guys of 2016 pulled it off, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that was impressive to me because coming down, like you said, the, the, the stress of, and, the, and the pressure of being in a big market and being in Chicago and dealing with the media and the expectations of, you know, on top of all that, the expectations of not winning in over a hundred years, um, 
and then you get a good team together. They, we started here in the buzz in, you know, July and, um, you know, and, and you don't really feel it until you get into September and then it starts to be like, okay, well, we've answered all these questions. What can we, what is there still possibly to talk about? We just, we just want to go out and, and, you know, try to win some more games and get to the end and, and, and get to the postseason and go for it. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it is, it is, uh, it's constant conversation. It's a daily conversation. You know, you just want to get to the yard and, and do your work in the, in the gym and get out and do your long toss throw and keep your program going. Um, you know, and meanwhile, you've got, you know, 30 or 40 media outlets out there that are, that are wanting to talk to you or, or to chat with you and, and, uh, and get, and get and do their job as well. Right. So there's, there's a bunch of people that have, have obligations to do their job. And, and, uh, but the hardest thing was just, I think probably just the schedule of trying to figure out when you can, without blowing everybody off, getting, keeping your work in, staying focused, and then, you know, trying to still talk about it, which was the hardest part. So that's, for me, that's what was so impressive about the 2016 team. I think they all handled it from top to bottom, and, you know, incredibly well with the media. And you never felt like, even when they had stretches where they didn't play well, you never really felt like there was stress in that clubhouse. And, and obviously I think that's the key. And that comes from the, you know, Joe Madden from the top down and, and uh, just, you know, embrace, embrace the pressure. Right. And he had a couple right. of good, good phrases that he used to use. And, uh, you know, the one that I liked the best was don't let the, don't let the pressure outweigh the pleasure. And, uh, you know, those guys definitely didn't do that. Well, and you had a tiny clubhouse, so that exacerbated it because every time you walked in, you had to walk around a, a lounging chair or, or, you know, Paul Sullivan or whatever. And uh, yeah. the other thing too, and JD can speak to this, I suppose, going back to your pitching days, you have to f- come up with a different answer to the same freaking question, right? 10 times a week. And that, that, that has to get old after a while. And that's why it's amazing managers can, can not snap on people. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I literally, I tried to give the same, I, as most boring person I could be, I'd say <laughs> the same exact answers, smile at them, say the same thing. Cause it's the same question. You're exactly right. And, and, you know, some managers can't. You see that that's when you get the good tirades from the managers and the good snaps and the sound bites. And it's, I don't know if, the, I don't know if the, the, the guys are trying to get that out of you, but I mean, I, you got to get tired of asking the same question because we definitely get tired of answering it. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost a, a dance um, that you do because, you know, a lot of times the writers, they know the answer before they ask the question. Mm-hmm. They just, they just want to be able to attribute it to you, you know, to the player because it can't be theirs. It has to come from, has to come from the source. Um, yeah, and that's what that's why I think we all appreciated Joe so because he could play that game so well, and he steered the conversation so many times. Uh, yeah, Len, how many times were we in his office, or if you're around the scrum when he's dealing with writers before the game, and it would take about 40 minutes before you'd get to a baseball question. We'd be mm-hmm. talking 70s rock and roll and and art and just all kinds of uh, wine and, and and everything else before you get around a baseball question. <laughs> By that time, everybody was like, well, just give us something, Joe. We're, whatever you say is good by us. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, Woody, and you kind of alluded to it, um, and I early in my career uh, in Milwaukee, Paul Molitor, uh, he would show up and do like five minutes every day and just like, what do you guys need? And then they left him alone. And so I'm sure some of the advice for, for players who are being hounded is just get it over with, right? Because if someone really needs you, they're not going to stop until they get your quote. So as difficult as it is sometimes to schedule that time, just kind of being available for two or three minutes. Okay, good. Boom. You're done. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, 
And uh, when you get into that rhythm where you're like, hey, I know what they want. I know the question's going to be, um, you know, I dealt with injuries a little bit more than the most guys. So I had to deal with that stuff, which was not always easy. But, um, you know, it's 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 FaceTime, too. Right. Like you have you, you, you develop a trust with people when you see them every day. And then, you mm-hmm. know, of course, Sammy was doing what he was doing in 98. So earlier in my career, we would get a flood of people into the clubhouse. You have no idea what what outlet they're from, what their angle is, who they are. You've never seen them before. And they all want, you know, throwing microphones in your face. So that got a little bit. Uh, irritating at times but Lynn I gotta say when you first came over to the Cubs I mean I saw you in the clubhouse every time it was open you were down there showing your face introducing yourself talking to people and and I think that's what it takes right it's building the trust that you're in this with us you're you're there you're traveling with us you're doing it every day and you're just you're just you're trying to learn you're trying to learn guys you're trying to do your research and your homework and 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 I think from a player's perspective you know we we can we can all complain about reporters, but we we all respect the ones that do it the right way and, and the ones that, that put their work in and do their homework. Well, I just, yeah, you know, I, I definitely like to be around the action. Uh, some of it's selfish. I, I just, I like talking baseball and, you know, uh, I have a good relationship with John Lester. I don't, I don't bother him a lot, but if I need something, I go up and ask him one question and we're done. <laughs> the other story um, I can tell is Justin Verlander, uh, when he was still with Detroit, they were at Wrigley Field, and I had read something about how he would occasionally uh, ramp up his velocity and not throw, you know, 96 in the first inning. And so I walked over to their clubhouse and I said, Justin, do you have a second? I have one question. And he laughed and he said, yeah, right. And he goes, go ahead. And so I asked my question. He gave me a really good three-minute answer. And I said, all right, cool. And he goes, that's it? And I said, that's all I had. I, I, I said, yeah. I promised you I had one question. But the one thing I know is that you guys are busy and I don't want, ever want to be the guy who every time you talk to him, it's got to be eight minutes. You know, it's yeah. like I can ask uh, Rizzo, hey, you know, yesterday, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, thanks. Go. You know, and, and, and the one thing that you tell a young broadcaster and J.D., you can uh, ascribe to this, too, is that sometimes you just have to go. You could yeah. be in the middle of a deep conversation. It's like. I got to be in a meeting in one minute or I got to go record something and you have to be able to break it off at any second. And if you're not that kind of person the clubhouse is probably not your place. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I had one guy too that, and you don't know who I'm talking about, George Castle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he would, we would lock horns and I couldn't, he would just follow me wherever I was going. I couldn't, I couldn't shake him, but I didn't mind talking to George cause he was right. like, he was like a historian to me, you know? So I was learning stuff from him. And it was just, but it was a daily, it was a daily grind. And we just, we would lock horns and it was like, I can't shit. And all the other reporters are looking at me like, why are you spending so much time talking to this guy? You're blowing us off left and right. And you're spending, you know, 45 minutes with George every day. And I was like, listen, you know, I, he's got no angle. He just, he just talks. He's a historian. He wants to tell his stories. And I, and I didn't mind listening to him. It's really a fascinating place. And if you haven't been in the clubhouse, it's almost, it is hard to describe sometimes. Yeah. And everyone is different. You know, I came up with the Yankees and was there just briefly. And that clubhouse was mayhem. There was so much media in there. And then I got traded to the to the Astros. And there was like two guys. You know, there was a beat writer for the Chronicle and a, and a beat writer for the Houston Post, which no longer exists, and maybe a couple other people. But it was so much easier and so much more laid back. And then obviously the, the situation here with the Cubs is, is kind of more like what I experienced with the Yankees. Where there's yeah, people I, in there. I had the same thing. I, I, leaving here and then going to Cleveland, I was like, whoa. You know, it was like there was nobody in Cleveland. It was just a just a couple of beat writers and you know the TV guys, and that was about it. No one was ever coming into Cleveland clubhouse, and you know something to be said about it. I guess I didn't feel the pressure. I was I pitched terribly when I was in Cleveland, so 
you know, then I got traded to New York and it was a mayhem again and, and, and did really well there. So I, maybe I secretively or, or, or not knowingly enjoy it. You thrived on all, all that, yeah. uh, all the heat. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it makes me think of Lou Pinella. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I've been around anyone who loved that all the stuff we're talking about more than Lou. He loved the big stage. He didn't mind controversy. He didn't mind arguments. He had no problem with yelling at people or getting yelled at. And uh, I just, I enjoyed being around him so much. Woody, what was your experience like with Lou? It was, it was good. I, you know, Lou was, Lou's a very smart baseball guy. Obviously he's been around the game a long time. And, and, and when you could get Lou one-on-one and have real conversations about baseball, you, you know, you could definitely learn a lot. And he was, he was very knowledgeable about the game. And, um, but I, you know, I had, I had a couple of run-ins with Lou and, and, um, one of them was, well, probably both of them were my fault, but <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a game in Pittsburgh. We were, we were up by five and and we had gone through the bullpen and uh it was just me and bob howry sitting down there and uh we were it was getaway day in cleveland and and we had st louis coming up so i'd already pitched the previous two games in pittsburgh so i i figured i was going to get this day off it was we were up by five and um and uh we were sitting down there and i'm like who's it you know we look at each other me and howry and like who's it's gonna who's it who's it gonna be and uh and so Harry's like, well, if it's not me, I tell you exactly. I know how much confidence he has in me. And sure enough, like 15 seconds later, the phone rings, get Woody up. And so I'm like, what, what in the world? Why am I pitching in this game? We've got St. Louis coming in town. I just pitched two days. I need a day off. I'm going to be, I'm probably going to be pitching in all three of these games in St. Louis that are big games down the stretch. And so I came in, not mentally prepared. I came in, I gave up a hit. I, I think I balked. I walked a guy. We ended up giving a run, giving up a run and we, we won the game, right? No big deal. We won the game. Uh, but I was still kind of upset about getting in, get, being in that game, just kind of thinking ahead. And then I gave up a run because I wasn't mentally prepared to go in. And, you know, that's my fault for not being ready. But so I came in, we shook hands, and I kind of snapped a little through my, through my glove or did something. And I guess Lou saw it, and he, and he called me. And, and I was in the shower. And then Larry, comes, Larry Rothschild comes into the shower, and he's like, hey, Lou wants to see you. I'm like, of course he does. So I throw my towel. I'm in a towel. I throw my towel on. I walk in, and he starts out with, you know, son, what's the prop? What's the bleeping problem? You know, and my the, all year long we were like, he doesn't know anybody's name. He calls right. everybody son. So I said, my well, first problem is, is my name's not son. You can call me Carrie. You can call me Woody. You know, and then he's like, well, son, I go and then I yell at him, snapped at him again because he called me son right away, right after that, right. And so then we we had it out, and I told him what was going on, and. And he, and he explained to me that Howard, he said his shoulder wasn't feeling great. So I gave him, the, I gave him an extra day off and I was like, all right, my completely my fault. Misunderstood. I'll be ready to go tomorrow. And I walk out of the room and then I come in the next day and, and, uh, Larry comes over to him and he's kind of giggling and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, Lou, he, he's, he was sitting there talking to him. He's like, man, that, Wood, Wood really doesn't like me when I call him son. <laughs> he's like, snapped at me. So. So I walk in the next. I walk in the next day to kind of re-apologize, and and Lou now Lou's getting out of the shower. It's I'm in street clothes. Lou's in like he's in a towel, so it still has water. He's soaking wet. I knock on the door. He's like, Come on in. I, I walk in there and and Lou's in a towel, and I was like, Hey, hey, boss. I just I want to apologize. I didn't handle that the right way last night. I'm sorry. I should have done that. We won the game. I should have. I I did not handle that the right way. I just want to let you know I'm ready to go. Da 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 da. And he's like, Come here, son. And he, and he gives me like a big hug. 
Like he's he's fresh out of the shower. Towel's probably <laughs> barely hanging on, and he's bear hugging me. And so I, I didn't know what to do. So I hugged him back, and and, and I left, and I was kind of shaking. And Larry walks by, and or Larry was in the office at the time too, and that happened. And Larry walks out, and he's he starts laughing. I'm like, what? I go, that was kind of weird. And he's like, yeah, I got to tell you, <clears throat> the last time I saw a Lou hug a player, it was Rob Dibble, and they were in. Uh, they had a, a fist fight after the after the very next game. <laughs> So I was like, well, as long as I don't pitch, hopefully we don't get in a fist fight. Uh, but Lou was, Lou was great. We had a couple of run-ins like that. But again, if you talk to him like, a, like an adult and, and handle your business, and he, like you said, he doesn't mind arguments. He doesn't mind ruffling feathers. He doesn't ha mind having those discussions. But uh, yeah, the, the fresh out of the shower and wearing a towel Lou hug is, is always a good story. <laughs> you mentioned Larry Rothschild, who uh, is one of my favorite people on the planet. And uh you know, and, and I could tell this to Larry's face, you know, there are people in the game who don't know him and he, he carries himself very seriously. And they're like, well, you know, what's Larry like? I'm like, Larry's one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's a Chicago native. He's got a Midwest politeness about him. But if you don't know him, you would never know that. And uh, yeah. you were with Larry for a long, long time. He's uh, still in the game, the pitching coach for the Padres, and uh, another guy who was not afraid to yell at people either. Yeah. No, and, and we had a couple of run-ins. You, you were with anybody that long, like you're going to yeah. have a couple of run-ins. So me and Larry had a couple too. But I, I mean, I love Larry. We, I loved him like a dad. He was, he was uh, obviously you know instrumental to my career, and 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 mechanically would would, would out spend hours and hours just meticulously looking at stuff and. Because I, I wasn't a computer guy. I couldn't go in there and look on a screen and, and say, hey, uh, this looks like I'm doing this wrong. I had to actually, you know, go out and throw a bullpen and try to adjust it while I was doing it. So I could never really look at film and do that and fix things. So I would tell Larry, something's off, go find it, and then come tell me what it is and let's go fix it. So he was he was awesome at that. He would spend hours doing it. And, and sure, I mean, he, he was never wrong. I mean, he was... He was dead on with, with, and it wasn't just me. It was, he had 13, you know, 12, 13 guys that he was keeping track of. And, and, uh, and Larry was great, but you're right. He, he, he's got a great demeanor. He's, you would think he's super quiet and super nice guy and, and all business. But, uh, that, that 2000, that staff and, and, uh, that we had together and, and, uh, even, yeah, all the way through, actually, we had, with Clement and Pryor and, and Zambrano, it's just, we, we tried to get him to loosen up so much and, and mess with him as much as we possibly could. And he, and he took it like a champ. We are chatting with Kerry Wood. We will have more after a quick word from our sponsor. Here's to the road ahead. Trust Toyota to be here for you. A Toyota hybrid will give you the confidence to go farther than ever. Enjoy advanced tech in the Camry hybrid. Load up the family in the roomy Highlander hybrid or adventure in the RAV4 Hybrid, the best hybrid SUV for the money. Right now, get 0% financing on every Toyota Hybrid, all from the brand you trust. Today, tomorrow, Toyota. Visit U.S. News Best Cars at cars.usnews.com on 2020 hybrid models. Terms available on approved credit through participating dealers and Toyota Financial Services. Not all customers will qualify. Void where prohibited. Offer ends. July 6th, 2020. Speaking of computers and the numbers, uh, we I like to ask a lot of retired players, I've asked JD this question, but is there a bit of analytical information or some piece of technology that is prevalent today, Woody, that you would have loved to have 20 years ago? 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think that just when I was talking about Larry having to go find out what was going on with my mechanics, right? I mean, I think the stuff these guys have now, like they can, in their bullpen sessions, they can in spring training or even during the season, they can, they can get feedback. They can turn around and look at the screen after every pitch and kind of see rotation, see, see spin, see what they did, you know, all that stuff. So I think if I was to have that kind of a, um, device with me especially during bullpen days or, or through spring training i think i think bad habits would have had a harder time creeping in you know i i, I still think it comes down to the, the way your body feels and health and if everything's 100 percent when you go out there which it rarely is but um you know i think to have that instant feedback after you throw a pitch and when you get a you get a good result you can turn around and see what it you know see what the numbers are and then you can throw the very same pitch the next time get a bad result turn around look at the numbers and see where it went wrong. And I think to have the ability to do that, you know, pitch to pitch in a bullpen is, is unbelievable. And I think there's a lot of information too, you know, video based and, and also, you know, with all these tracking devices. Yeah. Now, the, the um, you know, the, the angle of the spin on the breaking ball, you know, some pitchers have been convinced of, you know, don't throw the slider, throw the curveball. Other guys have been convinced you're throwing your two seamer too much. You need to rely more heavily on your four seamer because you have this unbelievable spin rate, you know, in our, we didn't know what spin rate was. No. We knew guys had lively fastballs or, you know, four seamers with hop on it, but we didn't. We, there was no way to quantify it. So that's you know that's a that's been a huge change in the pitching industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I would come into spring training every year. That first bullpen, Larry was standing there, and the first year I was dead serious. Like I came in after and this was well, I started in '04, so after a '03 season, really good season, came in '04. And like I go to throw my first slider and I stop like mid windup and I turn to Larry and I'm like, hey, how did I hold my slider last year? <laughs> and he just like looked at me so puzzled, like, are you serious? Like you've been throwing this for like three or four years. Like, how do you not know how you grip the slider? I'm like, well, just tell me where I had my fingers. You know, and I was kind of serious because I threw one, I ended up throwing, I threw one play and catch and I'm like, that just didn't look right. It didn't feel right. So then I started to throw it off the mountain. I'm like, stop midway through and I'm like, hey, how did, how did I do that again? And so then every year on, I would see like every pitch, you know, the first bullpen of the season, I would say, hey, how did I hold my curveball? How do I, what did I do with my, just to kind of mess with him. But like legitimately, I would, I came back one year and I was like, that just doesn't feel right in my hand. Um, but to be able to have a machine behind you telling you your spin, your spin rate and direction and all that, all the stuff that they have access to would have been, would have been nice. Larry would have enjoyed it too. So he would have been less work for him. <laughs> you know, JD, we haven't even talked about Texas. We got to, we got to dive into Texas and uh, you guys both know Nolan Ryan. What do you, what, um, what are your memories of watching him pitch when you were a kid and uh, what sort of relationship, if any, have you had with the, uh, the strikeout King? Yeah. You know, obviously watching him as a kid and just his dominance, just the way he, he took the game over from pitch one, uh, just, and, and the intimidation that he had on the, on teams before he even took them out, um, I think stood out to me and, and, um, just to watch a guy like that go out on the mound and have complete control, even if it wasn't a good day, it, 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 the hitters were never comfortable. Um, so I just, I, I enjoyed his, his approach, his aggressiveness, his, the way he challenged guys with his fastball and, um, you know, over the years, I got to meet him a few times. The relationship didn't continue, but we had a we had a mutual friend that introduced us, and I had to have a got a chance to have a couple pretty pretty good conversations. Uh, you know, about about fastballs and strikeouts, and and uh, how and when to elevate and things like that early in my career. So, uh, you know, I cherish those those conversations. You have uh, have you heard the Oscar Gamble story regarding Nolan? No. So the story goes: Alan Ashby told me this one years ago. He was teammates with with Oscar, with uh, Cleveland, I guess it was. And they're on the team bus, and they're riding, riding up to the Big A, and Nolan was such a big deal, they would, they would 
put him on the marquee. You know, Angels versus Indians tonight. Nolan Ryan pitching, and and Oscar's line was, "Oh boy, oh for four and don't get hit in the heads." A good day today. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my point exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh well, JD, you can also you've got a million Nolan stories, but um, maybe maybe one of one or two of uh, Nolan's greatest hits for for Woody, if you haven't told him. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I just like like Woody said, he had, he had a presence about him. I, you know, I was college teammates with Tom Browning, who pitched for the Reds, and uh, one time talking with Tommy before a game in Cincinnati, he said to me, you know, I'm watching Nolan, and he's strutting around out there like he's a king. And my response was, yeah, <laughs> that's what he is. That's what he does. But he, you know, he's he. But that's that's his his mound persona was completely different than his personality because he was a laid back, you know, just what you expect. Texas rancher, easygoing guy, um, very kind of humble, small town approach to life. But when he got on the mound, he was a different beast. Uh, in '86, in the playoffs against the Mets. Uh, in game one, Mike Scott was pitching, and Lenny Dykstra started the game with a line drive single up the middle. And Dykstra took a big turnaround first, and he was pumping his fist and, sli- you know, just what was considered showing the other guy up back in the day. It's not a big deal now. And <clears throat> Nolan was sitting there in the dugout watching it all go down. And he said, I believe that boy just earned himself a bow tie. <laughs> and sure enough, game two, very first pitch, he completely undressed. Dykstra, I mean, you couldn't throw a better knockdown pitch. I mean, the helmet came off, the bat went flying, and it was just, you know, it was, it was typical Ryan. And, but in typical Dykstra fashion, he got back in there and hit a rocket to center. Yeah. It, was, it was really impressive. I mean, uh, Nails didn't back down, but uh, Nolan, it was fun to watch him pitch. He was, when I was on that club in Houston, you know how it is, Woody, when you're not pitching, yeah, maybe you go up and have a cup of coffee in the clubhouse yeah. early in the game or what. But when Nolan pitched, I never lost the fanboy. I was like, I, I got to be there for every pitch of this. So I was always made sure I was locked in. Yeah, well, that and too, you know he's going to hit somebody or at least one. So you got to be down there and be ready. <laughs> although although Ventura took a shot at the old man and it didn't work out well for him. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Speaking of strikeouts, you uh, one of the all-time great uh, strikeout pitchers, especially for a, a starter. Uh, what do you make of the game today and just how prevalent uh, strikeouts are yeah you know i i don't you know i don't do enough of the uh analytics like i said and i don't follow it a lot i i just when the games that i do watch and i see the strikeouts going up um uh, you know and home runs as well but i you know i i think a lot of it is a launch angle and, a, and i think the swings are not as flat there's not as many you know contact guys base hit bunt guys and i think um you know speed seems to be eluding the game a little bit we don't have base stealers anymore as much and so I, I i really think it's i really think it's a pendulum swing i think it's you know like every every seven or eight years there's a new pitch they go from you know the split fingers a new pitch to all of a sudden the curveball is coming back now and, and then it was a slider for for a few years and so um you know i i don't know if the i don't know if that's going to change in the future i think that with the analytics they've got all the numbers they know exactly what works and i think um i feel like teams value the three run homer more than, you know, a guy with speed or an, or an on-base guy. But, um, no, I, I feel like the swings have gotten a little more uppercutty since, since, uh, over the last 10, 10 or so years. Um, yeah, but everybody likes a home run. Sure and with that, you're going to get strikeouts. <laughs> yeah. And do you watch a game thinking, 
Man, Kerry Wood in his prime, I'd, I'd rack up 23 strikeouts in a game. With, with I guys. mean, the high fat, and, and not only that, the high fastball, like they, they're calling the high strike now. So, like, I, you know, I, we had to work down on the zone, and, and obviously you did too, JD. Like, you, they, you never got those calls. You know, the, no, the you, high, you're the hoping high to get a chase up there. You wouldn't get a call. Yeah, it was only a chase pitch, and now it's like a belt or at the belt or a little bit higher. Like they take that, it's a called strike. So, um, yeah, there's uh, yeah. I, so I, as far as a twenty strikeout like record, I I fully expect that to fall at some point, probably sooner I, than later. The only thing about that though is guys generally just don't pitch deep enough into games to even get there, right? I mean, yeah, you, pitch count. Yeah, pitch count, you can't walk anybody. There's never been a walk in a 20-strikeout game. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know how you strike out 20 without throwing 120 pitches. Yeah. Yeah, but, I do have that on my side, I guess, for now. The, the, the pitch count. <laughs> <laughs> you see, somebody will have, like, 16, and, and Woody will be on Twitter. They're going to kill this guy. Get him out of the game. Get him out of there. He's going to blow his arm out. <laughs> exactly. So I have the list of the guys you faced. Uh, I'm just curious if you know which – Major league hitter you face more than any other in your career? Oh, let's see, probably it's got to be a Cardinal or a Brewer or a, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, man. It's a guy, hell, uh, it'll, this will give it away. It's a guy you told you didn't like when you became his teammate. Oh, Jim Edmonds. I was going to say Edmonds. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Edmonds. Yeah, 51 plate appearances. So Edmonds, Adam Dunn. Albert Pujols, Craig Biggio uh, in the top four. So, yeah, all those guys you faced a bunch. Uh, I'm just looking at some of the numbers here. Unlike J.D., who struggled against Barry Larkin, uh, Larkin only hit 200 against you. Yeah, I don't know how okay. it felt. <laughs> did okay against Larkin. I felt okay. Uh, they, he was still chasing high fastball. Now, Jeff Kent is a different story. I don't know how you yeah. felt against him, but, man, oh, man, he, for some Guy reason, killed, had your number. He killed me. He hit every pitch I threw. I, I, I even threw – Mark Clark was, was a like – he threw this little BP sinker. And, uh, you know, like halfway through a season, I'm like, man, this Jeff, we're facing the, facing the Giants. We were in candlestick. I'm like, this guy's wearing me out. He's hit slider for a homer. He's hit fastball for a homer. He's hit my changeup. He hits everything. I've hit him in the ribs. He still, he still, like, he still kills me. He's like, throw him a little BP sinker. I'm like, I've never thrown a sinker in my life. What do you do? How do you do it? So he was like – my little bullpen in between starts, I played around with a couple and thought I saw some movement. So I was like, ah, maybe I'll throw it to Jeff Kent. First pitch, I threw him a little BP sneaker, hit it 800 feet. <laughs> so I, that, Jeff Kent wore me out. He, he obviously saw the ball really well off of me. Yeah, interesting. There are a lot of really good hitters who did very little against Kerry Wood uh, in their career. It's kind of fun to, to look at that stuff. So let's, let's hone in on 1998. You're 20, 21 years old. Uh, you've got the the Sammy McGuire chase. You're trying to establish yourself in the big leagues, 20 strikeout game, that whole deal. I mean, what a whirlwind of a summer, huh? Yeah. I mean, it really was. It was from just from getting called up, right? Like you get called up and that's already your whirlwind. And then, um, then you know, fifth start, strikeout 20, and it was just, I wasn't ready for it. Um, I was just a young young kid from Texas, quiet, just wanted to go to work and, and, and do my job and stay under the radar as best I could. And, and I screwed that up in my fifth start. So, you know, I, I, I said it a few times too about Sammy and, and, and the whole home run chase, you know, they, unbeknownst to him, like he, he probably saved my whole rookie season just for the fact that he took off and hit 20 homers in June. 
it just completely took all pressure and spotlight away from me. And I was able to focus more about my, on my job and go out and do what I had to do and work on stuff and try to get better. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm probably more grateful than anybody, uh, on the, on that team for, for Sammy and his, his, uh, his season that he did, that he had that year. It just, uh, I really feel like it saved me a lot of the media pressure. How, how scary was it when you had to have reconstructive surgery? I mean, you're, as you say, you, you, you start your career with such a bang and then all of a sudden you have to be wondering, am I ever going to do this again? Yeah, no, it was, it was terrifying. I've never had, you know, I wouldn't even let him give me a flu shot in my right arm. I never had anything. And now, now all of a sudden I've got a doctor and instruments and all kinds of stuff going on inside the, my, you know, my upright elbow. So, um, you know, it was, it was terrifying for a few months. And, and honestly, when I, when I, when it became time, you have to learn how to throw again. You have to start at like 40 feet playing catch. And, you know, it's just weird. You haven't thrown a ball in four months. You've got new parts in there and, and, you know, drill holes and all that stuff going on in the elbow. And it's like four months into it, you start playing catch. And it was, it was a weird feeling. And, and you just kind of wonder if you're ever going to get back. But I would say that probably about a week into it, like probably my fifth or sixth time playing catch, I had, a, I knew that I would, I knew that I'd be fine. And it, and it is just going to take time. Um, so I felt confident after I started playing catch and working my way back through the rehab process, um, you know, for the elbow, but the shoulder now looking back on it, having gone through shoulder and, and, and elbow and, and other things, but I, uh, I would do the elbow 10 times before I had to do a shoulder. The shoulder yeah. was terrible. Yeah. You know, kinetics is a real thing and trying to you know figure out what mechanics work and don't work, but I don't know how you guys feel about it. The, the, the more we know, the less I believe mechanics really have anything to do with injury and that some guys are just freaks and don't get hurt. And other guys, most guys eventually will, even John Smoltz blew out yeah. late in his career. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny talking to, to Smoltz about, you know, what guys should do and shouldn't do. And, I remind him all the time. I'm like, you were a freak, man. Tom yeah. Seaver and you and Fergie. I mean, yeah. I, I just think sometimes it's luck, the luck of the draw. Well, I mean, that's why those guys are in the at, at, in the spot they're in, right? They're Hall of Famers, and that's that's kind of what it takes. But, you know, I, for mechanics, I always said, and which was hard for me to do because other body parts were hurting, you know, back and other things go and play into it. But mechanic, good mechanics are whatever you can repeat. Like your body gets used to that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's when you have something out of the ordinary on a pitch or a few pitches or a start or a couple starts in a row, something changes. That's when, that's when we get injured. So, you know, I think as long as you can, as long as you can repeat it and that's what Glavin and Smoltz and Maddox, those guys, their mechanics were the same from, you know, year one to year 12, like that you could look at them on film and it's identical. You know, I think just being able to repeat your delivery is, is your that's your mechanics and if you can repeat it your body can handle it yeah good 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 note when when uh, prior came along right that everybody said it's the next tom siever he's got you know these huge cast perfect big, strong perfect shoulder. mechanics perfect mechanic. yeah. he'll never get hurt is what everybody kiss of death is. well yeah. he, he probably wouldn't have honestly i mean if if i mean he's probably the biggest proponent for dh out there right like if he hadn't yep. been on the bases running and hit giles he may, he may still, you know, he may have, may have pitched for another 10, 12 years. You know, when he, when he hit, when he hit Giles and flipped over me, tore his capsule on that base running play. Yeah. And then he went, then he went back out and pitched another inning on it with a torn capsule. Didn't know it yet. And, you know, when you, you know, guys, when you tear a capsule, that's just not, right. most guys aren't coming back from that. And he worked really hard to get back a few times and, and got close and, and, uh, but you're never the same. So anytime you have any kind of an injury in there, it's, it's, 
you know, it's going to change your mechanics, no doubt, because you're going to try to, your, your body's going to naturally do what it can to stay away from the pain that it feels when it's doing it. Um, but I think if he wasn't, if he wasn't in that collision, he, he would have had a tremendous career. Did you ever tinker, you know, through all the injuries? Okay, I'm going to drop my arm angle. I'm going to sink the ball. I'm going to become a different pitcher. Or was that? Yeah, no, I, I had to when I went to the bullpen. Um, when I realized I couldn't, I could only throw about 50 or 60 pitches and then the, the shoulder would start, you know, start aching again and feel like I had to, was going to have to start over through my rehab process after shoulder surgery. So after I had shoulder surgery, I had to, uh, I had to get more over the top. So I couldn't throw that little slurvy thing anymore. And, uh, and the curveball wasn't, wasn't great, but I, I really, I had to raise my arm ankle. I was a little bit more three quarters or a little mm -hmm. bit lower as a starter early. And, uh, and then when I came out of the pin, I was more, I had to go more over the top because I couldn't get, I couldn't get that same angle. So, you know, I had to, that's when the cutter came in and a lot more forcing fastballs. And then I could throw the curveball um, from over the top, but the slider was, was kind of non-existent. Of all the, the great moments you had in your career, and this one, you know, contextually, I, I suppose, wouldn't be at the top just because you didn't win the game. And this is the thing where I wish guys like you could just kind of remove yourself from your body and just be in the ballpark. But the home run you hit, in game seven of the NLCS, that's the loudest I've ever heard Wrigley Field. It, it might be the loudest I've ever heard any ballpark ever, or any NBA arena. I mean, it was complete, total bedlam. But you probably couldn't enjoy it because you're in the middle of trying to win a ball game. But that that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I had chills running around the, you know, running around the bases. I just remember sitting on the bench and, and watching Redmond throw changeup after changeup after changeup, and I'm like, guys, he's just throwing changeups. He can't yeah. throw it, you know, he can't throw it past any of us. He's only topping out at like 88, um, 87 maybe, and uh, but he was he was throwing this changeup. We were flailing around, flailing around. So I just committed myself to us. I went up, cheated first pitch fastball, and fouled it off. And then I was like, all right, I'm sitting changeup the rest of the bat, and Fouled off another fastball just because it was I was late on it because I was sitting change up and then he threw me three changeups in a row and got it to three two and then I was like all right well he's gonna throw me a fastball now and and was just lucky enough he was up in up in the zone and 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 I caught it and uh, but running the bases I, I knew I tied it up as soon as I hit it and then I was like all right try to not smile or try to not react and just kind of run the bases and then like you know you get first base and. I look, I look towards second base and the bleachers have just erupted and beer and everything's being thrown in the air and people are going crazy. And then, and then my legs got a little wobbly on that one. <laughs> so I got to second base and just made, and made it in. And I was like, you know, it, again, it didn't, didn't really get to enjoy it as, as like you said, but right. uh, it, it was, it was, it was kind of like, all right, start over zero, zero. We got a chance here and now we're tied. So go back to work. So hitting a home run is cooler than striking somebody out, right? Way cooler. <laughs> Way cooler. I would, I would have freaking moonwalked around those bases. Oh, <laughs> it was, yeah, that was that's yeah, top two, top two moments right there in my career. Yeah, no, that was that was something else. You know, hitters don't sit change up enough. There, and I, my theory is that most hitters don't like being laid on fastballs. Yeah, but like, wh why wouldn't you sit change up on a guy who's going to throw you one? But they don't. Right. Well, again, his changeup was 80, 81 maybe, and his fastball was 86, so it's like 87. It wasn't that big of a differential. I, look at, I still didn't think he was going to be able to throw it, throw fastballs past us. Um, so why not at least pick a couple of pitches? You know, you know you're going to see one. Exactly. You know, I guess that speaks to because you were a very good athlete and a good hitter. But never once in my career when I was pitching 
than I contemplate for a second what the opposing pitcher was doing. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, I think, that you were that aware of what he was doing, where he actually had a game plan. Um, and I couldn't hit a lick, but I'm curious how many other pitchers um, do that, pay, pay that much attention to well, the opposing pitcher. I'll tell you one guy is Jake Arrieta. Yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, he said he watched his uh, scouting. He'll he'll look at the scouting report. Uh, Lester and Lackey said, "I got enough to worry about that they don't." But but Jake is very into the into the hitting part. I know that. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you be like? And then then you know, like Zambrano would come in and like he he just was he was just a freak. All he had to do was make contact. He was so strong, but right. he uh, you know yeah, I took it seriously. I mean, if you can hit, I mean, it kept me in some games longer than I probably should have stayed in, just because of the fact that you know Dusty Dusty would let me go hit. Yeah. And he would green light me first pitch every time. So I got some cheater homers on the first pitch fastballs. And um, yeah, when you know it, when you have an idea and you're guessing, when you guess right, you can actually, you can actually hit it. So Dusty's managing the Astros and another uh, iconic, you know, Hall of Fame caliber manager uh, you played for. Uh, Any Dusty stories stand out? Oh, man. No, not really. No, I mean Dusty was great. Like Dusty, Dusty was, and I told him this on his. I sent him a birthday card, and and his wife put something together for him for his. Dude, it might have been his. I don't know, his fiftieth or sixth, maybe his fiftieth birthday, and and uh, I recorded a little thing and, and wrote him a little note, and and I said you'll probably even I said to this date and probably forever for the rest of my life. Like he's the only manager that had a that had like a team meeting and a pep talk. And he quoted Genghis Khan and Tupac in the same in the same speech. <laughs> That's um, pretty good range. Yeah, good range. Uh, Dusty was great. I, I I loved playing for him, and I know he catches a lot of crap for his X's and O's. But I think um, you know you can ask anybody that ever played for him. They absolutely just love playing for him. They'll they'll run through the brick wall for him. They'll do what they can, and and, and I think it speaks volumes to who he is as a person, and not just not just a manager. I mean, he was. He was a uh, he again another father figure for for me and my wife. We were we were newly married and and uh, you know trying to have trying to have kids. And he was he was you know we had several conversations with him and uh, throughout those times. And he was tremendous for for my wife Sarah and, and great for me. And, and just not baseball stuff, just life stuff. So uh, I love Dusty and and you know it was actually he reached out to me yesterday for Father's Day. So it was good to hear from him and uh, just I really enjoyed playing for him. Yeah, he's a good man, and uh, you're right. I've never talked to any player who ever played for him who didn't love him. Uh, JD, you got one more for Woody before we let him go? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, circle back. You, you had mentioned Texas earlier, Len. I just wanted to go back and just uh, the, the Kerry Wood experience in high school. You were the uh, fourth overall pick in the draft in 95. I mean, did you ever did you lose at, at all in high school? I mean, Texas high school baseball is really good. But to be yeah. 20 years old, striking out 20 guys, you know, 20 very good uh, hitters on that Astros club. So you're, you know, three three years removed from high school. I'm just wondering if if you, you know, if somebody had faced you in high school, and and got a hit off you, or if they had beaten you, that the bragging rights they would have with their buddies, like, you know, what was you? I mean, the scouts must have been all over you. Uh, yeah, we, we had we had four guys drafted off my high school team my senior year. Uh, two of us, two of us signed and went. And the other ones went to college, and uh, one went to Wichita State, and the other to TCU uh, to play football. Um, but yeah, our, we had a first rounder, a sixth rounder, a thirty-second rounder, and I'm not sure what round the last guy went in. But um, so we had a good team, and there was, you know, we had thirty scouts every night, you know, cross checkers and everybody at every game. So my my buddy uh, 
best friend growing up. He was the other left-handed pitcher. He he pitched Tuesday nights and I pitched Friday nights. And, um, you know, that was it. We didn't really have anybody else. We had one other guy that would throw if, if we had a tournament or we had weekend games or something like that. But um, he was Tuesday night. I was Wednesday, I was Friday night. And, um, yeah, I gave up some hits. Didn't didn't lose. We, I was 11-0, I think, that year. And um, gave up a couple of hits. And, um, yeah, but, I mean – the year before that, I was just I was just another guy that couldn't pitch. You know, I wasn't a I wasn't a hard thrower, and, and I grew six inches between my sophomore and junior year. And my junior year, I pitched a little bit, but we still had a, my coach at the other school I was at had a you know had a senior ahead of me, so he was big on letting the seniors seniors lead the team. And and so I would I was like the third or fourth pitcher. And then uh, most of my stuff, most of my recognition, and most of my work is done in the summer league in Texas. And, Again, it's tremendous competition. Your scouts are at all those games. So, um, you know, really the first time I was seen by a scout was my sophomore year. And I was the only reason they, they saw me was because I was facing, they were there to see Ben Grieve. And, uh, and so all the scouts were there for Ben. And uh, I pitched well against him. He did take me deep, but I got hosed on the call before. So, <laughs> <laughs> but Ben was a stud. And so I, I really kind of lucked out. It was just my day to throw. My coach, coach put me in there and I was my day to pitch. And, and uh, and I got a chance to face Ben when all the scouts were there, so I think kind of kind of put me on the radar a little bit. All right, last question: uh, <clears throat> Your best friend in the game? Is there one or two, maybe uh, guys you played with against who, uh, to this day, you would consider uh, a brother in arms, so to speak? Yeah, you know, I, I still reach out to John Lieber, and, and obviously I'm in contact with Pryor and Clement. And uh, you know, early in my career, I was really really close with Jason Beret. Um, he took me under his wing and, and, uh, we had some good times together and, and the families and we would travel in the off season and see those guys and, um, life happens and it's just been, been too long in between and, and we still keep in contact a little bit, but not, not like we did, but I, I would say probably throughout baseball, he was, he was probably one of the guys I was the closest with and, and, uh, and John Lieber's great. I, I still obviously see him during Cubs, Cubs convention week and, and, uh, you know, we, we check in with each other and. There's a handful of guys I still we still kind of check in with and, and keep in contact, and the wives are all friends. And uh, I'm not a Facebook guy, so I don't I don't I'm not on social media much, so I don't keep track of most guys. Like most, my wife keeps in contact with most of the wives, so we we'll, uh, we'll she'll she'll tell me, hey, you need to you need to call Matt or you need to call you know Jason and talk to those guys. Yeah, Matt Clement, another Matt Clement, another beautiful human being. Love yeah, that guy. Great. <laughs> Woody, thanks so much for the time. We'll do this again. We'll uh, dive into some other stuff, but uh, really great information. And uh, we'll see you at the ballpark hopefully soon. Let's hope so. Great talking to you guys. Thanks, Gary. Great stuff from Kerry Wood. I love the Lou Pinella stories, and I'm sure he could have told more. Uh, Woody had... A lot of fire. Uh, there were moments when, you know, he would fire his glove into the stands after a rough outing, but uh, he was a fierce competitor. There's something about those Texas-born pitchers, huh? Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> part of that uh, that lineage, right, with Ryan and Clemens and Harry Wood. And I guess Josh Beckett came on a couple John of years. John Lackey. Uh, yeah. John, yeah. The, um, and a big, tall. They're all, they all, they're all big and right-handed. And uh, yeah, you're right. Kerry had had that competitive fire, and I think some of that probably fueled uh, by the frustration too of all the injuries that he had to overcome. Um, but yeah, you know, come for the 20 strikeouts, stay for the Lupinella stories. <laughs> that stuff is beautiful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when he's calling him son, and <laughs> just good stuff. 
So it looks like we're going to play baseball, and uh, I'm thrilled about it. And if everything lines up the way everybody wants it to, it's going to be quite the sprint. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. It should be a lot of fun. You know, everybody wants to discuss the legitimacy of this and what's it going to be like to crown a champion. And frankly, at this point, I don't care. I, I just want to see um, a bunch of humans running around out there in Major League uniforms playing ball. So uh, let's go. I'm, I'm fired up. Uh, all right. So for this week's admission, do you have anything in particular? I'm I'm searching for one. Um, well, I, I guess, um, you know, talking pop culture, um, I don't know that this makes me unique, but I have never seen a single episode of The Wire. Mm. Um, maybe one episode of Breaking Bad, but I don't think so. And about half The Sopranos. So these, um, these great programs in TV history, uh, I haven't really checked in on. So I've, I've asked you for your recommendation, which well, one, if I was going to pick one of those, which should I watch? To me, it's The Wire. Uh, I think it's the best uh, show ever made. I think it's incredibly realistic. And uh, yeah, for me, it would be The Wire. I'm in. But you got, you have to, like the first episode, there's a lot there and it doesn't make a lot of sense and you, you've got to stick with it. <laughs> The, there is a payoff, but you got to keep watching, okay? Because okay? okay. I think what happens is you watch a pilot and you decide based on 50 minutes whether you like a show or not. But uh, yeah, stick with that one. And the other cool thing about those types of shows that are now 20 years old is you go, oh, that I, I know her. She, she was in this show. And, you know, all of these actors uh, went on uh, to, to, to other big performances in, in movies and the like. So I think, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, I guess I'll stick to baseball and with all the rules possibilities. And at the time of this recording, uh, nothing is necessarily firm. Uh, not a big fan of the idea of a runner at second base to start extra innings. And uh, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, like the 12 inning tie uh, is, is, is something I would be totally fine with. I actually looked it up in 1876 at the dawn of the National League. A month and three days into Major League Baseball history, Louisville and Philadelphia played to a 2-2 tie. So you might not like the idea of a tie. And obviously back then it had to do with probably the fact that it got dark and they didn't have lights. In terms of the essence of the game, a tie would be part of the essence if it occurred in 1876, right? Yeah, they used to – sometimes it was based on the train schedule too. They had to catch a train. So the game would end, you know, can't afford to play one more inning, uh, time to go. Yep. Well, a special thanks to Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Oboikowicz, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. For JD, I'm Len. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review, and share this podcast with your friends. We will talk to you next week with a couple of great baseball authors, Brad Baluchian and Dan Epstein. It's Open Concessions presented by Toyota.